take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. We plan to finish the chapter this morning. So we're going to look at verse 13 through 21 together. The title of our sermon this morning is called What Love Does. Because we're going to find out. We've been talking a lot about love in the last couple of weeks. In fact, last week we talked about how we define love. And I read some of those cute ways that kids define love, you know, like the dog licking their face and uh, sharing fries with one another. You know, that's how we define love. Every one of us would define love a little bit differently, though, based on our context, based on our experiences. And so the thing that we talked a big part about last week was who defines love. And we said that the source of love should define love. And we identified the source of love as God himself, God the Father. And so love doesn't define God. God defines what love is. Our culture defines love in any number of different ways. But really, God defines it because he's a source of it. We also talked about that big, long biblical word called propitiation last week. And we told a story about the fire, the Midwest fire, and the man who burned his own area so that when the fire came through, there was nothing there to fuel the fire anymore. That was their propitiation. It had already been burned. And so when we stand in Christ, he has already bore the wrath of God and we bear it no more. He is our propitiation. God's love for us has an effect on us. It always motivates Christians to go and love others. And so John is is hitting that idea home today. He has said that if it doesn't translate to love for other people, then that is an indication that your love is not genuine. He says that God's love does not abide in you. So it's something that we should certainly take notice of. I love this quote that we finished last week with. I want to read it again from John Stott. He says, The unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. It's how the world sees God's love. It's in his people. It's in you and me if we call ourselves Christians. Throwback to when we first started 1 John. I mentioned how John writes a certain way, almost like a musical where you've got verses that talk about certain things, and then he comes back to a chorus and repeats a familiar topic. Well, today, the chorus is love again. He's coming back to the idea of love, but he kind of approaches it from a little, of a, little bit of a different angle this time. Now, back at the end of chapter 3, John laid out practically what love for one another looks like. And he, he said, and you guys remember this, he said, look, if your brother is in need and you have what they need, and you do not open your heart to them, how can you say the love of God abides in you? So there was very specific action of what love does in a Christian's life. We should be loving one another sacrificially, and that's the model that Jesus gave in the end end of 1 John chapter 3. He laid down his life for believers. So John today is going to tell us how to have something that everybody wants and how to get rid of something that everybody wants to get rid of. Listen for them as we read our text this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, 
because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, we do ask for that. There's a lot of practical stuff to learn here, Lord, but it's hard because it involves loving like you love. And that seems to go against our nature a lot of times. So form us into your people. Lord, with your discipline, form us into your people today. Depending on the need, Lord, I pray that you would have your way, work your will in our lives today. Amen. So look at verse 13. And then compare it back with verse 24 of chapter 3. Verse 14 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 13 of chapter 4 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now look back at chapter 3, verse 24, specifically the end. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So tell me, what's the common denominator between those verses. The Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. That's the common denominator in knowing that God lives in us. The Spirit. That's the confidence that we know that we've been born of God, that we are of God, and that we know God. Now, I noticed something interesting today, or this week really, as I was studying these verses. The Trinity is here. Now, I want us to see the triune God here. Now, the, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, okay? But the concept is everywhere. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend this week, and they had read in the beginning in Genesis, and they said, man, the Trinity is there. It's, it's even back at the creation account. The writer of Genesis uses personal plural pronouns when he says, let us make man in our image. It's a reflection of the Trinity. Now I want to see it in 1 John 4. Look at verse 13 with me. We see God the Spirit here. Verse 14 and 15, we see God the Son. And then we see God the Father all throughout verses 14 through 16. Emery, you can go ahead and put that slide. There you go, buddy. You can see the Trinity, the evidence of the triune God right here. And the indwelling Spirit is how you can know that you abide in him and that he abides in you. It says, by this we know. We want to know this, don't we? There are Christians around the world who struggle with knowing that they belong to God. 
And John is saying, you can know right here by his spirit. And because his spirit is in you, you have seen and you now testify to the truth that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 14. But I want us to personalize that for a moment. We have to know that he is the savior of the world. We also have to know something more personal than that. We have to know that he is our savior. You have to know that he is your savior. He came to die for your sins. He's not just the savior of the world. He can be your savior. There's a good portion of people that recognize that Jesus came to this world but they've not internalized it into personal belief and therefore it's not effective in saving them. It's just a head knowledge. It's a 100% true statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is 100% true. But if you don't believe that you are the sinner that Jesus came into the world to save, then you cannot confess to really knowing God personally. That's what verse 15 gets at. Glance down there. It gets at this very thing when it uses the word confess or confesses. Guys, you can't confess something that you don't know to be true. Think about a court of law. If someone comes up to give their testimony, they are confessing to what they saw. But they can't confess to something that what they didn't see. That's called perjury. And this is the same way here. You can't confess something unless you know personally that it's true, unless you've seen it with your eyes. If you're claiming something is true, but you haven't witnessed it personally, then it's just secondhand knowledge, and you can't be 100% sure that it's true. But if it's happened to you, you know it. You've experienced it. You believe it. It's real. And then, John says, you testify to it. You proclaim it. You make it known. And that's exactly how John says a person knows God is in them and they are in God by confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you genuinely believe this? Do you genuinely believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is God the Son? And if you do, you can be assured, you can have confidence that His Spirit is with you and His Spirit is in you. I think it's interesting Remember, when James David preached a couple of weeks ago, he preached about false teachers. And this was the test to find out if someone was a false teacher or not. This was the test. It was, do they confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Is he really the Son of God? The spirit of truth confesses that. The spirit of error does not. Jesus has come in the flesh, back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. So now, because of the Spirit of God within us, not only do we confess the truth about God the Son, but we also come to know the truth about God the Father and His love for us. Look at verse 16. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This, I think, forces us to ask a bit of a question here. How can we come to know and believe something so remarkable as the love of God the Father. How is it possible? Would any of you stand up and tell us in completion the love of God in your life? I don't know that you can. 
I don't know that any of us can. We don't recognize all of the ways, every single way that God has given us his love, especially without the Spirit. Without the Spirit, understanding God's love for us, I I think would be almost like a three-year-old trying to understand and then explain like trigonometry. I'm 38, almost 39, and I cannot explain that to you. That's what understanding the love of God would be like. It would be inconceivable without the Spirit of God, without His power. So God's Spirit doesn't only confirm salvation, but also allows us to know and understand the Father's love for us better and better and more and more. So here's another moment to reflect this morning. I'm going to switch John's statement into a question for us. Do you really know? And do you really believe the love that God has for you? Not just the world. Do you really know and believe the love that God has for you? Because you can have knowledge of something and not believe it. But I don't think you can believe something that you have no knowledge of. Does that make sense? The Spirit of God has to remove the scales from our eyes, the blinders from our eyes for us to see his love. And the Spirit of God also has to lead us to repentance and change our minds so that we can understand his love, so that we can see and understand it, to know and believe it. Now, in verse 16, John repeats himself from one of the main points of last week. He says, God is love again. He says, God is love. Do you see evidence of that love? Do you see it? This is a time when we stop and we reflect on being thankful. We're grateful for things. At least we ought to be. Even in, even in 2020 and everything that's gone on, we can stop and be thankful. Do we see evidences of God's love? I'd encourage you as you gather with whatever family can be at your Thanksgiving gatherings to stop for a moment before maybe you eat and just say, how, how can we reflect on God's love for us in this season? John wrote convincingly of the love of God in verses 9 and 10. I want to go back and read that because it's so stark and so telling. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's what we have to be thankful for. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The evidence of God's love for you is the bloody cross. The evidence of God's love for you is the sacrifice of his own son. The evidence is the empty tomb. The evidence is now the spirit that dwells in every believer. That's the evidence of God's love for you. And then he says, whoever abides in this love abides in God and God abides in him in verse 16. In verse 12, we're told that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13 points back to love for one another and says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And then verse 14 explains how anyone can love another sinner. 
only because the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God the Father sending His Son is the only way that we have hope of loving one another. This is that thread of love. I want to point this out today, this thread of love. God loved us enough to send His Son for us. Jesus loved us enough to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, the wrath that we deserve. And the Spirit loves us enough to abide in us and to confirm our standing before God. This is the love of the triune God that we see here. We love one another. Christians love one another because of their connection to the love of the triune God. This is how we love each other. Because God loves us. Now verse 17, moving along, reveals something else accomplished through this triune love of God. It's confidence on judgment day. Now, when John says, by this, he's pointing back to something, right? Something that he's already said. And he points back to the verse where John speaks of believers abiding in God and God abiding in them. By this. So abiding in God was made possible by the Son. Abiding in God is a continuing work of the Holy Spirit. Abiding in God is revealed in our love for one another. And abiding in God brings confidence on the day of judgment. John says that we can be confident because on that day, as he is, so are we in this world. If you are in Christ... Brothers and sisters, you have a new relationship with God. But you also have a new relationship with the world. You don't respond the same way you used to to the things of the world. And you don't respond the same way you used to to the things of God anymore. I want to go back and read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 in 1 John to help us remind us of this. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see Him on that day as He really is. Paul in other places says that right now we just see things, we see the world through like a dimly lit glass. It's not real clear. It's hard to see. But one day we'll see him perfectly. We'll see him truthfully for who he really is. And not only that, but we're going to be like him. Get this. I ran across this as I was reading this week. The father treats the saints the same way he does his son. When you love somebody, you will understand better who they are. And we do that by discovering likes, dislikes, what's going on in their life, you know, what do they enjoy doing, that sort of thing. If we love them, we're going to find out more about them. Well, as we grow to understand that person better, we're more confident of our love for them and of their love for us because relationships are a two-way street. Well, the more confident that you are in your love for them and their love for you, the more trust is infused into that relationship. So love 
produces confidence, which leads to trust, both in our earthly relationships, but also with the Lord, also with God. Warren Wiersbe explains it this way. The more we love God, the more we understand the love of God. And the more we understand his love, the easier it is to trust him. After all, when you know someone intimately and love them sincerely, you have no problem putting your confidence in them. I think that's true. And this is the thing that every person wants. Here it is. The thing that every person wants is confidence when standing before their maker at death. In verse 18, John tells us how to get rid of the very thing that everyone wants to get rid of. So the thing that we all want is confidence on judgment day. And the thing that everybody wants to get rid of is found in verse 18, and it's this, fear. I've talked with the kids about some of the things that they fear. And if you Google a list of fears, of phobias, you will find list alphabetical list after list of everything people are afraid of. And they are things from sort of common things like spiders and heights and claustrophobia to, to, to strange things, unusual things, things that force anxiety on people that maybe wouldn't happen to you and me. It's, it's almost alarming at how many things we can be afraid of. If you look at it, if you look at that list, you would think, oh my goodness, you can be afraid of just about anything. There is a phobia about guys with facial hair. I hope my wife doesn't have it. But there's, there's things like that. And you think, how can anybody function in this world? We're, all, we're so afraid of everything. Now, some people rise to greatness by conquering their fears, but for the most part, fear debilitates us. It makes us stop where we should keep moving. It causes us to think wrongly about situations or about people because we're afraid. Fear keeps us from living like we really should. Have you ever thought about the day that you're going to stand before the Lord when you die? I have. Have you ever thought and trembled at the idea of standing before him? I have. I would imagine that you have too. As I was growing up in a very uh, loving and well-meaning church, we watched a video. I don't remember the name of it. It was in the 80s, made probably in the 70s. And it portrayed young people in an accident, dying, and going and standing before God. And as they stood before the Lord... Behind them, on a giant television screen, replayed every one of their sins from their life. And that was my mindset for the day of judgment. That's what I understood was going to happen. And was told that when that is over, that video is fully played, and everybody sees all of my evil things, and I'm thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed, then at that point... God would say, well, you believed in Jesus, so regardless of all of that, you get to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. In fact, I think it teaches the exact opposite. Christian, if you have been saved by the grace of God, all of the sins that would play on the screen behind me are erased. They're gone. God isn't saving them on a DVR to play for us when we're 
finally dead. They're gone. They're deleted. That's not the kind of love that God is talking about. That's not the kind of love that God has for us. John says here that the kind of fear that he's getting at is a fear of judgment. And that's what was instilled in me. And God has broken in me over the years. That's not the kind of fear. Now, the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord in positive terms. Right? You probably remember Proverbs 1, chapter 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's a good thing. Like There are some fears that produce positive things, but it's not the kind of fear that we usually think of. And that's not the kind of fear even that John is talking about here. He's talking about the fear of, of judgment. And he says in this same text that this fear of judgment has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment, he says. But according to these verses, according to the word of God, we do not need to fear God's judgment. Why? Because of his love. Because of his love. The love of God rescues us from fear. John says it casts it out. Now there's a lot of different phrases for this in scripture, it casts it out, it gets rid of it, it expels it. The love of God eradicates fear in the believer and it repels it. If fear has taken up residence in your life in any kind of situation, the love of God can evict that fear. Love kicks it out. Love has an intended goal in this text. John is getting at it by the Spirit, and this is it. To instill confidence and to eradicate fear. That's the goal of love in this text. When we've come to know and believe God's love for us, fear is driven out and the dread of punishment is gone. It's vanquished. We are loved by God in this way so that then we can go and love other people the same way without fear. Is God's love perfect? Yeah. Is his love effective to change the one who's been loved by it? Absolutely. That don't live in fear, brothers and sisters. Don't live in fear of punishment because God's love has done away with it. He has sent his son to be the savior of the world, to be your savior. Living in fear of God's judgment reveals that something is wrong. John gets at that here. It reveals that God's perfect love has not yet done its work in their life. The love of God allows Christians to live in freedom from fear of punishment. We don't have to fear that day and when we're free from that fear, that frees us up to love other people well. Do you see the thread? Do you see the order of importance here? God's love first. And this is what he goes to in verse 19. This is one of the most straightforward and simplest phrases in all of the Bible. And I love it. It's packed with theological truth. He says this. He says, we love, Christians love. Now you could stop right there. You could stop right there at Christians love and you would have a 100% theologically accurate statement. Christians love. We love. 
But John doesn't stop there. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Because he first showed his love to us. Can anyone then, reading this, can anyone then say that they loved God enough to earn his love? No. Can anyone say that they were good enough that they earned God's love and forgiveness? No. Can anyone claim to truly love others if they don't know God and haven't been loved by him first? No. God took the initiative, not us. His love leaves the 99 in pursuit of the one. His love sent Christ, Christ down to die for sinners, for the ungodly. If anyone knows or experiences the love of God, it's simply because he chose to set his affection on them according to his good pleasure, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, and certainly not because they loved him first. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of God. He is the source of love. God is the source of love. And his love is the cause for how we then go and love others. So we could say this to ourselves this morning. If I'm not loving others as I should, as I ought to, then I don't know that I know God as I ought to. John ties these things directly together. You cannot separate God's love for you and your love for others. If he loves you, you will love others. And he has removed every barrier for us to live in fear or condemnation in order for us to go to that extra step, to that next logical, theological step of loving one another. Look at verse 20. John follows this with another moral test of our actions, with another if-then statement in verse 20. Let's read it together. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's clear if you do not have the ability or refuse to love the brother that you can see, then you're lying if you say that you really love God who you can't see. This is simple, but man, it is hitting hard, isn't it? In fact, if you claim the name of Christ, but don't show love for others, John just flat out says you're a liar. Now, that's the kind of words that makes fists rise and teeth clenched, right? You call somebody a liar and you're starting to fight. And John does it right here. So what's true? What's played out in your life? If you refuse to show love to others, you really reveal your lack of love for God. That's what it says. If God abides in you, you will love. You will. You have to. It's part of who you are. The new birth inspires that love to come out of you. Let's look at verse 21 to end and close this morning. This echoes with some of the things that John has already said. Whoever loves God must love his brother. And he says that this is the command. Verse 21. This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation for when life is good 
and you feel like loving your brother. This is how Jesus boiled everything down. They were trying to trap him. You remember? And they said, what's the greatest of the commandments? He boils it all down right here to this. Love God, everything you have, with everything that you are, with everything that's in you, and then love your neighbor. Love others. Love your brother. Remember, look back at verse 12. It says, no one has ever seen God, but his love is perfected or accomplished or finished or completed. It hits its mark if we love one another, it says. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how God designed this all to play out? When the world sees you loving each other, the church, Christians loving one another well, that accomplishes the purpose of his love in the church. That's incredible. That also adds some responsibility to our interactions, doesn't it? It can't just be a country club feel in churches. It can't just be, well, I'll go when, I'm, when it's convenient or when I feel all right about it. It's like you can't not go. Something is missing when you miss the fellowship of believers in the body. It hurts you. It pains you to not be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God's love for you, friend, was clearly displayed by Christ on the cross. His love motivates you, Christian, to now go and love others. His love for you and then your evident love for others casts out fear in your heart and gives confidence before God that the Spirit really does dwell within you. So my encouragement today, walk in love. Walk in truth. Walk in light and walk in confidence because, not because you have done something to bring God's love about, but simply because He first loved us. God took the initiative in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, this is, God, this is equally challenging as it is magnificent and, and miraculous and wonderful to think that you, in your perfect wisdom, would include us in making your love known to the world blows my mind to think that Christ came for people like me who had no desire for your ways or your things before you, but the Spirit made me alive and I've been saved by grace through faith for the purpose that you have laid out before the foundation of the world. Lord, we have heard the message of the gospel the truth this morning about your love for us, how you have broken down every barrier to help us to see and feel and understand and know and believe it. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be conformed to you and your image. That Jesus Christ would not just be lifted high with what we say, but what we do. Help us to show love as you have shown it to us. And in that way, we have confidence before you because your love, your spirit is within us. Thank you for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.